Chapter 8. Moral Advocacy Many factors can influence future outcomes. These include technological progress, economic dynamics, cooperation problems, and political or cultural trends. But perhaps the most fundamental determinant of how the future will go are the values of relevant decision-makers. We can only make progress on issues, from wild animal suffering to S-risks, if sufficiently many people care about them, thus creating the necessary political will to tackle these issues. Advancing better values could therefore be a good lever for reducing S-risks. This relates directly to the risk factor for S-risks that we discussed in the previous chapter. Better values increase the probability that adequate actions will be taken to prevent S-risks. In particular, better values make it more likely that advanced technology will be used responsibly, even if we cannot accurately predict how the world will change. We may be able to leave many future problems to future people, but only if they share our values. Expanding the moral circle Throughout the earlier chapters, we have seen that many S-risks relate to the disregard of the interests of non-human beings. Thus, a top candidate for what it means to promote better values is to ensure the moral consideration of all sentient beings. We should promote concern for suffering, irrespective of who is experiencing it, no matter who they are, what time they live in, or what species they belong to. This approach has been termed moral circle expansion. The moral circle refers to the set of beings or entities whom we grant moral consideration. An expanded moral circle would, so the argument goes, reduce the risk that neglected types of future sentient beings will be harmed on a large scale. A key aspect of moral circle expansion is the rejection of speciesism, the discrimination against beings who belong to a different species. As famously argued by Peter Singer in Animal Liberation, this can be viewed as a form of discrimination that is just as untenable as discrimination based on an individual's ethnicity, sex, or age. Sentience should form the basis of moral consideration, not an individual's species membership or any other morally irrelevant characteristic. We should give equal priority to equal interests, and to equal suffering in particular. Speciesist or anthropocentric attitudes are key drivers behind our disregard for many non-human beings, as well as the horrendous harms we inflict on animals in factory farms and slaughterhouses. Thus, we can likely prevent a lot of future suffering if we manage to spread anti-speciesist views and improve attitudes towards non-human animals. But the expansion of the moral circle goes further than that. Beyond the sentient beings inhabiting Earth today, we should also consider the possibility of novel forms of sentience that might emerge in the future. As discussed in section 1.4, it is conceivable that sentient artificial entities could be created at some point. If that were to happen, it is crucial that we extend moral consideration to such artificial minds, including disembodied or voiceless ones, especially if they are created in large numbers. That said, we must distinguish carefully between different aims. If our core aim is to reduce S-risks, 
we should be careful not to uncritically assume that expanding the moral circle is perfectly convergent with our core aim. And expanding the moral circle is in turn distinct from the goal of improving the welfare of farmed animals in the here and now. While these goals are clearly related, it would be a remarkable coincidence if the same interventions happen to be ideal in terms of several distinct goals at the same time. Instead, we will likely arrive at somewhat different interventions when focusing on S-risk reduction compared to if we were focusing chiefly on those other goals. It would also be misguided, though, to conclude that animal advocacy efforts are unimportant from a long-term or S-risk focused perspective. Most animal advocates currently focus on human-caused animal suffering in the relative short term. But their messages could be broadened to encompass all sentient beings, including wild animals and potential artificial minds. Likewise, establishing basic rights for some non-human animals could set legal and social precedents that may help us to later expand protections to other classes of sentient beings. Risks of moral circle expansion The basic argument for why moral circle expansion reduces S-risks seems intuitively plausible. A larger moral circle increases the likelihood that adequate measures will be taken to prevent S-risks, especially those that affect non-human beings who are often excluded from moral consideration. Yet, on closer inspection, the relationship between S-risks and moral circle expansion is not as straightforward as it might appear. A larger moral circle could backfire in combination with the wrong values or beliefs. For example, Concern for wild animals could, in combination with certain environmentalist values, result in increased efforts to preserve nature in its current state, in spite of the immense amounts of animal suffering in nature. Or a larger moral circle could result in the creation of more potentially suffering sentient beings when combined with highly optimistic moral views, according to which suffering can readily be outweighed by other goods. If not done carefully, moral advocacy also risks a backlash that could further entrench bad values or antagonistic dynamics. In the worst case, the idea of caring about all sentient beings might become a divisive, hot-button issue akin to the ongoing culture wars. As discussed in the previous chapter, such polarization could be a substantial risk factor for S-risks. This can be a strong reason to avoid a confrontational approach. We can and should be assertive about our values, but we should also be friendly and cooperative in our efforts to convince others, so that we do not accidentally push people towards worse values. A grave deterioration of values could potentially result in agents with outright malevolent, vindictive, or sadistic attitudes and goals, and the attainment of optimal values may be less important in terms of S-risk prevention than the avoidance of uniquely bad ones. This may be especially true if S-risks are heavy-tailed, as discussed in Chapter 5. Robust Forms of Moral Circle Expansion The risks and caveats outlined above are reasons to doubt whether generic work to expand the moral circle is a top priority from an S-risk perspective. Still, 
expanding the moral circle seems likely to do more good than bad in expectation, and therefore remains an endeavour that is worth supporting. Instead of refraining from moral circle expansion altogether, we need to find ways to expand the moral circle in thoughtful, sustainable and prudent ways. Targeted forms of advocacy can be robustly positive for S-risk prevention if they avoid the drawbacks of moral circle expansion. Likewise, it can be robustly positive to improve and develop existing social movements by increasing the degree to which they are able and motivated to reduce S-risks, in addition to other goals. The animal advocacy movement seems particularly relevant in this context. In the following, I will outline suggestions for how the animal movement can become even more effective at reducing the suffering of all sentient beings, from a perspective that takes S-risks into account. First, it is vital that we as animal advocates always remain open-minded and willing to learn more. This relates not just to empirical facts or strategic considerations, but also to foundational philosophical beliefs. For example, many animal rights activists have given little consideration to issues such as the suffering of animals living in nature, the vast quantities of invertebrates such as insects, or the possible sentience of artificial entities. If the animal advocacy movement is to be a movement for all sentient beings, we need to give deeper consideration to these neglected issues. Second, the movement would do well to, on the margin, focus more on long-term considerations. While it is urgent and important to alleviate animal suffering in the short term, this should not be the sole focus of our efforts, given the potentially much larger number of future beings. A long-term outlook entails an emphasis on achieving lasting social change and on ensuring the long-term stability of the movement. It is vital to avoid actions that impair our ability to achieve our long-term goals, as individuals, as organisations, and as a movement. Third, it is probably best to avoid needless controversy and to advance concern for non-human beings in a non-partisan way. For example, it is helpful to emphasise that the cause for reducing animal suffering draws support from the entire political spectrum, including conservative and libertarian voices. Such a cooperative approach reduces the risks of a serious backlash that could jeopardise our long-term influence. To be clear, a cooperative approach is perfectly compatible with being assertive about the moral importance of all sentient beings. Research suggests that a main driver of the backlash and hostility of some meat-eaters towards vegans and vegetarians is a perception of being judged as morally inferior. So, we should take care to avoid triggering such a perception. For example, by primarily framing the issue of animal suffering in institutional or political terms, rather than in terms of individual food choices. Promoting concern for suffering Another promising strategy is the promotion of concern for suffering. To counter the possible downsides of moral circle expansion, we could further develop and advance suffering-focused views, in addition to advancing moral consideration for all sentient beings. A key advantage of this strategy is that people who endorse suffering-focused views are particularly likely to prioritise S-risk reduction. 
new information can always change our assessment of a concrete intervention or policy, but agreement at the level of fundamental ethical principles seems robustly good, even in the face of great uncertainty. So, advancing suffering-focused views might be a uniquely robust and effective way to reduce ass risk. Of course, this strategy only makes sense if you endorse suffering-focused views yourself. Promoting concern for suffering can take many forms. An important part is the refinement and dissemination of philosophical arguments that support a special priority for the reduction of suffering. To be clear, any exploration of suffering-focused ethics should always be done in an intellectually honest way, ideally with an emphasis on cooperation with other value systems. The Center for Reducing Suffering, which I co-founded, is an example of an organization that follows this approach. Other options include raising awareness of real-world cases of extreme suffering, or helping people close the gap between their ideals and their actions, for example by overcoming defense mechanisms such as denial or wishful thinking. Similar to moral circle expansion, it is generally best to advance concern for suffering in a non-partisan and nuanced way, to improve the chances that suffering reduction becomes a common goal rather than a controversial issue. Conclusion Moral advocacy can be an effective strategy to reduce S-risks, especially if done in a careful and prudent way that avoids backfire risks. Of course, this brief overview does not answer the question of whether moral advocacy is the most effective way to reduce S-risks or improve the long-term future. That depends on the tractability of long-term social change, the effectiveness of other interventions, the time sensitivity of moral circle expansion, and many other factors. If we decide that promoting certain values is important, we still need to find the best ways to do so. For example, animal advocacy can take many forms, including corporate campaigns in favour of animal welfare reforms, efforts to advance research and development of plant-based or cultured meat, or philosophical arguments against speciesism. However, a detailed discussion of strategic questions relating to animal advocacy is beyond the scope of this book. Chapter 9. Better Politics Our political institutions and discourse relate directly to several risk factors for S-risks. Dysfunctional politics can foster polarization, thwart efforts to prevent S-risks, and increase the risk of malevolent actors rising to positions of power. Efforts to improve politics are therefore a plausible lever to tackle S-risks. More broadly, a functional political system puts society in a better position to handle the challenges of the future, including the challenge of averting potential S-risks. Political decisions are the linchpin of our collective decision-making, and our political system is currently operating far from ideally, to put it mildly. We can and should do better. How to achieve better politics is, of course, a complex question. It is impossible to cover all relevant aspects in this book, so I will focus on proposals that seem particularly promising or important from an S-risk perspective. For a more comprehensive analysis, I refer the reader to Magnus Finding's freely available book, Reasoned Politics.
The two-step ideal. It is worth aspiring to a two-step ideal of politics that involves a normative step followed by an empirical step. The normative step is to clarify the aims and values that underlie our policymaking. This is not about merely stating our goals, but also about open-minded conversation and moral argument to discuss and refine the values that should form the bedrock of our collective decision-making. Once we have identified a set of carefully reflected values, the empirical step is to ask which policies are optimal for achieving our aims. This is usually a complex factual question which requires us to draw on the best available evidence and to engage in an open-ended scientific investigation and discussion. In short, the two-step ideal recommends that we adopt the mindset of a moral philosopher in the normative step and then that of a scientist in the empirical step. By contrast, contemporary political rhetoric often confuses empirical and normative aspects which hampers clear thinking. Following the two-step ideal would likely enable greater precision in our political conversations, as it helps us to clarify where we disagree and where we have common ground. This, in turn, allows for more fruitful political discourse, mutually beneficial compromises, and perhaps even moral progress. Efforts to move closer to the two-step ideal go hand-in-hand with an awareness of the various biases that often prevent us from approaching policy questions with an open mind. The most common biases include confirmation bias, as discussed in section 6.3, and motivated reasoning, which is when we seek to justify a desired conclusion rather than following the evidence where it leads. Overconfident political views are also ubiquitous, in spite of the complexity of most policy questions and the fact that most voters are not well informed about politics. This underscores the need for a deliberate effort to overcome biases and to approach political issues as open questions. By consciously seeking open moral argument and empirical evidence, rather than relying too strongly on immediate intuitions, we can likely reduce political overconfidence. In particular, it seems beneficial to focus more on understanding how a suggested policy works rather than jumping to support or oppose it. What does an improved culture of political discourse have to do with S-risk reduction? It is of course not easy to pinpoint or quantify the effects, yet it seems plausible that more reasoned political thinking and debate would serve as an antidote to the risk factor of excessive polarisation and that it reduces the likelihood that populist demagogues with malevolent traits are able to rise to power. Greater adherence to the two-step ideal would therefore likely reduce S-risks, while also contributing to better outcomes more broadly. Overcoming our tribal nature Muddled thinking, or a lack of information, are arguably not the only distorting factors in contemporary politics. Another core problem is our tribal nature. A key finding in modern political science is that social attachments to groups are among the most important factors determining our political judgments. This is in line with the idea that the primary purpose of our political behaviour is loyalty signalling, to express our allegiance to a party, social movement, or other community. According to this theory, 
political debate is not chiefly about promoting good policies or arriving at some notion of truth. Instead, we mostly cheer for our team and boo their team in a zero-sum game. A closely related concept is hot cognition. Our brains tend to automatically process political individuals and issues in emotionally charged ways. We instinctively view our own political tribe and leaders in a positive light, and the other side in a negative light. In the worst case, this can spiral into the vilification or scapegoating of certain individuals or outgroups, for example ethnic minorities. Our propensity for loyalty signalling and hot cognition explains many of our biases. For example, the drive to signal loyalty often leads us to display a high degree of overconfidence in the core tenets of our in-group and hostility towards rival groups. Expressions of uncertainty and nuance do not fit this team sports mentality. Every argument, and even the facts, must favour one's own team, lest one is seen as disloyal. Considering how ubiquitous and detrimental these dynamics are, it is imperative that we resist the pull of loyalty signalling. This will be challenging, as it requires us to overcome tendencies that are deeply ingrained in our psychology. A helpful strategy is a heuristic of nuance. If we acknowledge grains of truth in different perspectives and think in terms of greater degrees of credence rather than rigid certainties, we can avoid us versus them and black or white thinking. Another good heuristic is a norm of being charitable and respectful towards political opponents by engaging with the strongest interpretation of their views and arguments. And again, it is worth emphasising the shared goal of understanding how a given policy works instead of rushing to divide people into supporting and opposing camps. Overcoming our tribal instincts is directly relevant to S-risk reduction. Limiting the influence of biased intuitions and dogmatic partisan loyalties helps avoid excessive political polarisation, which constitutes a risk factor for S-risks, as discussed in Chapter 7. And more charitable political conversations arguably make escalating zero-sum conflicts and resulting worst-case outcomes less likely. Raising the standards of political discourse could therefore be a promising way to reduce S-risk. Reducing tribalism also opens up avenues for cooperation and compromise, which increases the likelihood that everyone's moral concerns are taken into account. To be clear, a certain degree of political competition is both healthy and unavoidable. Yet politics can often be win-win if we think in terms of policy outcomes and not in terms of beating the other faction. It is worth noting that extensive loyalty signalling frequently creates the appearance of major disagreements when there is actually only limited disagreements in terms of policy substance. We are less divided than we think. Indeed, the prevention of severe suffering is a good example of a widely shared and uncontroversial value. This is also a reason to focus political discourse more on policies and less on parties or individuals. The latter lends itself to tribal mudslinging, smears and name-calling, while discussions of policy substance tend to be more fruitful, especially when we focus on mutually beneficial policies. Institutional Reform 
The previous sections focused on our political culture, yet our political institutions are perhaps just as vital. For example, fundamental principles such as democracy, the rule of law, and basic human rights are arguably essential for achieving stability, prosperity, and liberty. To see how important these principles and corresponding institutions are, one needs only to compare North Korea and South Korea. From an S-risk perspective, important goals are to prevent excessive polarization, to keep malevolent individuals in check, and to prevent a descent into totalitarianism. Functioning democratic institutions can provide checks and balances to ensure that any single individual can never gain too much power, thus reducing the influence of malevolent actors. Conversely, a dysfunctional system often allows the most ruthless and strategic individuals with malevolent traits, to rise to power, resulting in a pathocracy. Efforts to strengthen democratic governance can therefore be a promising lever for reducing S-risks. Of course, myriad proposals for how to improve governance have been brought forward, and a detailed analysis is beyond the scope of this book. In the following, I will focus on a brief overview of reforms that are particularly evidence-based and relevant for S-risks. Parliamentarism. An example of a promising institutional reform is the switch to a parliamentary system of government in countries that currently use the presidential system. A growing body of evidence suggests that the parliamentary system is superior in many ways. In particular, research indicates that countries using the parliamentary system exhibit lower levels of political polarization, less economic inequality, and a lower risk of democratic backsliding compared to presidential countries. The parliamentary system is also likely better in terms of keeping malevolent actors in check. This is because power is more decentralised and the head of government can be dismissed fairly easily, whereas the president is usually elected for a fixed term in the presidential system. Overall, it seems plausible that parliamentarism mitigates several key risk factors for S-risk but there is still significant uncertainty about the effect size and the best ways to promote parliamentarism, and the tractability of switching systems in countries that have a long presidential tradition, like the US. Voting reform Another institutional issue in modern democracies is the use of majoritarian voting systems. An example is the plurality voting, or first-past-the-post system, which determines a single winner per district. Everyone gets a vote, and the candidate with the most votes wins. This system is used in many major democracies, including the United Kingdom, the United States, and India. An advantage of plurality voting is its simplicity. However, plurality voting usually does not achieve representative results, as the share of seats won by a party can diverge significantly from its vote share. According to Duverger's law, the winner-takes-all nature of the system tends to create a two-party system. This can contribute to excessive polarisation because a two-party system feeds into our tribal nature. If there are only two opposite poles, political actors have an incentive to focus more on demonising the other party than on achieving anything of substance. A prominent example of this dynamic is the excessive polarisation between Democrats and Republicans in the United States. 
By contrast, proportional voting systems, which translate the share of votes into a roughly equal share of seats, usually result in a multi-party system. If no party achieves a majority on its own, parties have to work together and compromise. This does not always work perfectly, but the shifting coalitions still reflect a more cooperative model of politics and mitigate the tribal us-versus-them mentality. This story is borne out by the available evidence. Countries that use proportional representation generally feature less political polarisation, higher voter turnout, higher satisfaction with democratic institutions, less economic inequality, along with various other advantages. Research also suggests that democracies that use a proportional voting system have significantly less war involvement compared to democracies that use a majoritarian system. Proportional representation is closely linked to parliamentarism. A presidential election necessarily has a single winner and is therefore, in a sense, maximally disproportional. So the advantages of proportional representation cannot be fully realised in a presidential system. This suggests that the ideal endpoint for reform is a proportional parliamentary system. It is worth noting that ongoing voter reform efforts often attempt to replace plurality voting while retaining a non-proportional system based on single-winner districts. For instance, many groups in the United States focus on the introduction of ranked-choice voting. While ranked-choice voting would likely be a modest improvement over the status quo of plurality voting, it would likely fail to fully bring about the above-mentioned benefits of a proportional system. So it seems preferable to focus on more ambitious reforms. Advancing and safeguarding democracy From an S-risk perspective, it is perhaps more important to avoid catastrophic institutional failures than to strive for the best possible institutions. The difference, in S-risk terms, between a democracy and an autocratic or totalitarian system may be larger than the difference between a functional democracy and a flawed democracy. Modern liberal democracies offer a much better protection of human rights and civil liberties like free speech. These fundamental rights are a precondition of being able to raise moral concerns, which is one reason why their frequent suppression in autocratic systems constitutes a risk factor for S-risks. Democratic principles and institutions have also been designed to have checks in place to reduce the influence of malevolent individuals. While democracies are not always successful in preventing malevolent rule, they appear better than any other system in this regard. So it seems likely that democracy helps reduce S-risks, taking into account also that war between democratic countries seems uniquely rare. This leaves open how we can best promote democracy. It is unclear whether we should focus most strongly on advancing liberal democracy in currently non-democratic nations, on safeguarding existing democracies against democratic backsliding, or on strengthening democracy in semi-democratic states. In addition, it is critical to ensure that promoting democracy is not used as a pretext to pursue economic or foreign policy interests. Such misuse is highly unfortunate as it can discredit the idea of advancing democracy and even contribute to a great power conflict. 
political representation of all sentient beings. Another proposal is the idea of extending political representation to all sentient beings, including non-human animals. Non-human animals cannot represent their interests themselves, but we could, for instance, institute commissioners on their behalf who are solely tasked with defending the interests of non-human animals. This has been termed sentientist democracy, or sentiocracy. Similarly, an argument can be made that we should grant representation to future individuals, another class of individuals that go wholly unrepresented in current institutions. The political representation of all sentient beings would likely reduce S-risks, because it would, similar to moral advocacy, result in better protections of previously neglected individuals, at least in theory. On the other hand, sentiocracy would be relatively uncharted territory compared to the other reform proposals listed above, which have already been proven successful in many countries and are backed by tangible evidence. Is politics too crowded? I have so far bracketed questions about the effectiveness or tractability of efforts to improve politics. One might argue that the area is too crowded due to a plethora of actors vying for political influence, and if there were any easy solutions to political dysfunctionality, why have they not already been found and implemented? There is an element of truth to this, but I believe that efforts to improve politics can still be valuable for many reasons. While many people pursue some political agenda, a much smaller number is systematically working to improve our political culture or institutions in an effective and evidence-based way, drawing on the best available scientific insights. And aspects that relate to S-risk in particular, like malevolent traits or the representation of non-human beings, are more neglected still. Also, even a marginal improvement of political culture or institutions can potentially be highly beneficial. Transformative change will not happen overnight, but it is quite realistic that we could become somewhat less biased and somewhat less tribal, or that our institutions could be somewhat more functional. We can plausibly increase the degree to which our politics is based on carefully reflected values and sound empirical evidence. Conclusion While it is difficult to know what the ideal political institutions or culture would look like, the bar for doing better than the status quo seems low. And another reason for optimism is that many insights about our political psychology and biases are fairly recent and have not yet trickled into the public's awareness. Likewise, evidence-based findings on the benefits of parliamentarism or proportional representation are yet to reach a wider audience. A key advantage of many of the above proposals is that they are beneficial from many perspectives and not only in terms of reducing S-risks. This chimes with a cooperative approach to S-risk reduction and increases the likelihood of gaining enough traction to achieve positive change. Finally, it is often important to state and aim for ideals even if their large-scale adoption is not feasible in the foreseeable future. Continuous improvements can, over a sufficiently long time horizon, add up to transformative change, and a good starting point is to follow the two-step ideal in our own thinking and communication, and to set an example 
by advancing the principles of reasoned political discourse within our own communities. 